Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name's Sophia. I'm a 20-year-old from California. I'm a loan officer by day, podcaster on the weekends. I started this podcast back in April when I got furloughed from my job for about three months. And I was like, okay, I could sit on the couch and wait for my job to come back. Or I can go and start the podcast I've always been wanting to start, but been too scared to hit the record button for So I decided to go with the second option and it wasn't easy at first. It was very uncomfortable. I remember shaking before my first interview and thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to ask her? What if this doesn't go well? But I'm so incredibly happy that I just hit record. Even though I wasn't ready, I just said fuck it and hit record. And I think we can all use a little more of that in our life versus trying to overthink it and trying to plan it and make sure it's perfect. Just saying fuck it and starting it anyways. So that's kind of been my theory for the past year or so. And I'm so glad that I've just fully stepped into that theory. I've interviewed over 100 people since April. It's been incredible. And I've interviewed so many people from like singers to celebrity stylists to real estate investors to therapists to so many incredible people. (laughs) So many. It's just so many stories that I feel like I take away something from every person. And I can't really pick favorite ones because I really love them all. But I am so glad that I get to do this. And I'm so glad that I get to share these conversations with you guys. And my goal with a podcast is to let you know that we all go through shit shows. We all go through crazy moments and go through all these moments of why is this happening to me? What am I meant to learn from this? And to really inspire you guys to get out of your own way and just do whatever it is you want to do. And I really hope these conversations resonate with you. I would really love to connect with you on Instagram. My Instagram's the shit show of my 20s. And I would love for you to leave a review on Apple and just give me some feedback. Feel free to send me a message about any episodes you'd love to hear. Today's guest is Rob Temple. I love chatting with him. He's a stage hypnotist. He's been touring for over 17 years. He has an incredible story of how he got into hypnosis, how it, with the power it's had and how it has changed his life, what it was like for him to step into being a performer. And we also go into what his shows are like, how we can use hypnosis to reprogram our subconscious mind, what it's like to date a workaholic, and what we should know before we date a workaholic as well, and so much more. So excited for you guys to hear this interview. Let's get started. So thank you so much, Rob, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Would love to know, tell me, what have your 20s been like? How old are you? I'm 33. Okay, so you're already well past your 20s, but like, what were you? Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's hold off with the the well past. I don't think we need to go that far. Okay. That's it, out of. (laughs) Well, what were your 20s like? Take me back to your 20s. Um, Really quite different. So um, I work as a, as a stage hypnotist doing a show uh, is like my primary thing. And so that's interesting. And I spent my 20s, the first few years of it, I was in Greece. So uh, it's obviously a popular tourist destination for British people to go and get really drunk and then have a nice time. And so I was doing a show in like the cabaret bars and the cabaret show venues out there for a load of mostly British tourists who came out on holiday. So I spent the first few years doing that. And that was an experience because I went there having never, as a kid, we never really did like um, holidays abroad very much. Or if we did, me and my parents would like drive into Europe 
and it would be much more of like that kind of holiday. So I didn't really, I didn't really go out and have like the sun, sea and sand type holidays. So that was a new experience for me. And I also didn't drink alcohol when I went out there either. Obviously the, the age of drinking in the UK is 18. And so I was like in my early twenties and I still didn't really drink. If I, if I had like a Smirnoff ice or like some sort of weak alcohol pop, as we call them, that was uh, like, it was like a heavy night out for me. So I went out there and suddenly was plunged into this world of people who absolutely did drink, you know, beyond recognition and uh, loved to party and go to nightclubs. And that was so not my scene either. Cause I had I suffered from such a massive lack of confidence, but I wanted the opportunity to go out there and do my show that much. And to be able to do my show like six to 11 times a week and like, just get loads of experience under my belt. So effectively, I just packed up, left England, went to live in this little Greek island, the tiny little Greek island. Like you can drive the, the perimeter of the whole thing in like an hour, an hour and a half. And, uh, and I was going to be there for like eight months. And I just wanted to, I didn't know anyone, just wanted to immerse myself in it. And yes, yeah, so that's, that's where I started. Uh, and then I came home at the end of that. I reached a point where I thought, right, I've come to the end of the road with what I want to do here. I kind of see that as like my apprenticeship time, like my, my internship. I, that was me just getting shows under my belt, having a go practicing, like getting stage time. And then I was ready to like come back to the UK where things were a bit more sensible and like try and build something based off of that. Uh, and that's what I did all the way through my 20s. That then led to living in three different cities, getting engaged, uh, breaking up, moving back to my hometown where well, I still am. Yeah. Uh, two more relationships, two more ended relationships. And then eventually I hit 33. Awesome. And take me back to that time when you didn't have confidence. What was it that like, like, how were you able to shift that? So I've always been a really shy, terrified person. I recently discovered that I, I thought I'd like trained myself into being an extrovert. And I recently discovered, uh, oddly to my surprise, that I'm actually a real introvert. Like I'm much prefer just being in the house on my own, recording this at the time of a pandemic. We're like in lockdown right now in the UK still. And I quite like it. Like lockdown's my natural habitat. So yeah, I was terrified. And one of the problems that that gives you is when you want to be a performer of any description, like that's that's like a hard contradiction to, to battle with. And so, what I realized was the, this goes all the way back to when I was nine, like, so before my twenties, but this built up the picture of who I became through my twenties for sure. Going all the way back to when I was nine, I was asked to do a, I used to do magic tricks as a kid. That's how I got into doing hypnosis and performing. And I got asked to go and do a little magic show for a, a, a treat with brownies. So these kids are all like the same age as me. I was nine. This group of girls are about nine. And I had to go and do this little magic show thing. And I was all set up. I only had to do 20 minutes or 30 minutes and I was all ready to go. And then literally they all came in and sat down and the woman came out and she introduced me and I wander over in my little suit and picked up the first magic trick, ready to do the trick. And I just froze solid. Like this is my first time in front of an audience of like more than one person or two people. And suddenly I realized I have no confidence. I just couldn't say anything. My whole body just froze. Even though I was nine, I remember it like it was yesterday. And in the end, my stepmom, she had to stand up and like help. She had to like do all the talking while I just like really awkwardly did all the stuff. And that started this journey of, right, I need to figure out how do I get my confidence up? And so I managed to like build over a period of time but when I was in my, when I was 19, when I first went to Greece, and that's what kickstarted that first period of my twenties out there. I still was, I was okay at performing because I'd become confident in that part of my life. I'd built confidence and we can talk about how I did that, but I still had no confidence with like personal interactions. So having conversations one-on-one -on -one was something I found really, really difficult. The idea of like talking to girls, I found that impossibly difficult. Like this was just so not my area. And, uh, and again, everyone else was like going out and getting drunk. And I was like, well, I mean, I can come, but I'll just have a lemonade and I'll, I'll like stand awkwardly in the, in the corner and not dance or anything. And it was just a weird place to be. So the first thing that I took the opportunity to do was to immerse myself in the, in the thing that made me feel uncomfortable. 
And a lot of people talk about this idea of when you lack confidence in an area of your life, there's this myth that you should just fake it, right? So loads of confidence books will just tell you to just fake being confident and then eventually people will think you're confident and then that will train you to think as if you're confident. And it, the, the idea in theory works, but in practice, it's really hard to do. That's like saying to somebody who's frightened of heights, just jump out of a plane and then you'll be fine. What's more likely to happen is you're going to have a panic attack on the way down. And so the best way to overcome a fear of something or to get more confidence is not to throw yourself into it entirely, but is actually to realize that if you don't have confidence and you want to build confidence, then what you actually need initially isn't confidence because you don't have that. It's courage, right? It's courage to like step outside of the comfort zone and just have a go at something. And courage and, co- and confidence work together, but they're quite different. So the way that I like to see it is if you're like, let's imagine, right, there's this like rickety wooden ladder propped up against a wall and you've got to try and climb that ladder and you're frightened of heights. So maybe it's got like 10 rungs on the ladder and you're frightened of being on the 10th rung. You're probably not frightened of being on the first rung because you might as well be on the ground. Like that's fine. Anyone can do that. So you stand on the first rung and you know that if you fall, it's not even going to hurt. That's fine. And now if you want to go at the second rung, that's a little bit more scary. So what you need to do now is you need to find the courage to just have a go, to just take one step up. And when you find that courage from somewhere, just just to have a go and, and just brace yourself, you're not asking yourself to do an awful lot. You're not asking yourself to face your biggest fear. You're not asking yourself to go wildly outside of your comfort zone, just to try something that feels a little bit edgy, a little bit uncomfortable. And then when you climb up to that second rung, when you stay there for long enough, it becomes a very natural place to be. You feel perfectly calm with it and it just takes a period of time. And then when you feel like you're comfortable on that second rung, the next thing you can do is find that same bit of courage that got you from the first rung to the second rung and use that to get to the third rung. It's not like you need twice the confidence because you're climbing twice as high. You just need the same amount of courage that got you to be comfortable with where you are now. And what it actually comes down to is like an increasing amount of of increasing that comfort zone bit by bit by bit. And so that's what I did. I started off by just saying, well, I'll come out for like half an hour and and I'll just be surrounded by the people who had surrounded themselves with me. So when I first went out there, there was a troop of people who'd lived there for quite some time and they like took me under their wing. So I think the first thing that's really important is to find somebody who's doing the thing you want to do and just get in with them on a on a really personal level. And so what happened was we would go out for like a night out. I'd be there for like half an hour, an hour. I'd just surround myself with these two or three people who, like I said, taken me under their wing, who'd been there for a while. They knew the island, they knew everybody who was there. And whilst this is a really specific circumstance, like this applies to anything you want to do in your life, your career, your relationships, anything. And so what that meant was that over a period of time, I climbed from the first rung to the second rung. And actually, I became perfectly comfortable being in those scenarios. So the next step was, could I be out there in those scenarios for a longer period of time? And you know, before long, that became like, we were out till six in the morning, having a great time. And then, but I was still just surrounded by the little group of people I knew really well. And then over time, you start to expand that a little bit more and say, well, I tell you, I could go and I could go and talk to somebody I've never met. Before. You go and talk to somebody you've never met before and you just have a go. And uh, I think it's just about identifying what, what do you, and there's loads of people, you know, who will who'll have really good social confidence. They'll be the opposite of me. They'll have really good social confidence, but they'll really struggle in other areas of their life, academically, relationships, whatever, job interviews, career stuff. Uh, in which case, that's fine. You just have to replicate what I've just talked about and do it in whatever that part of your life is. And what's something that you learned from your time in Greece? I think I learned massively to be independent. So I know I I had a flat on my own, uh, an apartment on my own in the UK before I went out there. I moved out of my parents quite young and moved in with my girlfriend at the time and our best friend. And uh, we got this apartment and then 
I realized very quickly that I couldn't look after myself all that well when I was like 18. I, I just realized that like the floor was always full of clothes. I was always behind on doing laundry, like a typical young person things, right? I think that's a lot of people. And I was not particularly organized. In fact, I was really disorganized and, and didn't look after the stuff properly and just was quite flippant with everything. And I think being out in Greece was the first opportunity. And, and incidentally, like obviously there are countries in the world where you still have to go and do like national service and join the army for a period of time. And like, obviously it used to be like that in the UK. When you get to a certain age, you have to go off and do however long in the army. I actually think everyone on earth should have to go and now should have to go and do some time working abroad, doing anything, working in a bar, being a holiday rep, like anything. I think everyone should have to go abroad for a year and just, or six months and just do a season somewhere overseas. And again, do anything you feel comfortable doing, work in a bar, serve food, run karaoke nights, be a DJ, anything you can do, because it was the most eye-opening experience in the world. I went out there with all these great ideas, like I'm going to learn to speak Greek. And, you know, like four years later, I only know five words and they're all the rude ones um, because everyone speaks fluent English. So I could have gone somewhere where nobody spoke English and then that would force me to learn a bit more. But I think everyone should have to do that. So I learned how to be more independent for sure. I learned that um, the world is much more exciting when you step outside of the, your own country or your own town. As I said, we'd been abroad to like Germany and France and stuff for short times when I was a kid, but you don't get the chance to explore on a, on a holiday with your parents as that you do when you go out there and you have to work because you have to find like all the logistical complications that come with being somewhere for an extended period of time. Like how does laundry work? Like I don't have a washing machine or any of that stuff. I've got to go to the laundrette. How does all of that work? And you just have to solve problems. So I think it taught me independence and it taught me to solve problems like that nothing else that nothing else would. Because all I think all we do through life is solve problems. Problems arise and we solve them. And sometimes we don't quite solve them and then we have to deal with the fallout from that. So I, I think problem solving's one of the things I enjoy the most. Uh, and so it helped me with that a lot as well. And tell me about stepping into being a performer and what was that like to step into that role? It's really weird. There's, a, there's an old quote that uh, was said about magic, like in the 1800s, magicians were told that a magician is just an actor playing the part of a magician. This is this old thing that's been going around for years. And it, it's really true. And uh, I think it's actually true of anyone who performs in any capacity, whether, again, whether you're a DJ, whether you're a comedian, whether you're a, a magician, a hypnotist or anything else, a singer, dancer, you're effectively just an actor playing the part of that, that person. So when I step on stage, I actually go into a character and it's really just me. I don't think you'd particularly notice the difference, but it's like an amplified version of me. I get to be cheekier. I get to say things I wouldn't say in real life. I get to do things I wouldn't do in real life. And so for me, the idea of being a performer came about when I was like four. I saw a magician at a kid's party and I was like, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. This guy had an empty box and then it had a rabbit in it. And I was like, I want to learn to do that. And most kids like dabble with magic, like get a magic kit or something and usually play with it for a couple of weeks and then it's gone. And for me, I was just hooked. And I think part of the reason for that came from the fact that at four, again, I was this terrified kid just you know, like walking along a wall, you know, like most kids like climb and fall and jump off things. That was not me at all. Like I was like, I needed to be wrapped in bubble wrap. Otherwise I thought I was going to die. And so I was terrified of everything. If somebody came to the front door, I would like hide behind my mum's leg and all of this. And actually what magic gave me, uh, what performance gave me generally was basically like a crutch. Well, kind of like a crutch or something to hide behind. Like I just needed something that was going to elevate me. And there are loads of performers who have the same thing. Like if you talk to most comedians off stage, I've got loads of friends who are comedians. Most of them are very shy, very quiet, introvert characters. And basically being on stage and getting applause and laughter and all of that stuff is really just an outlet for them to go and, 
and, and feel something, like to feel good and feel strong. And so that's where it came from for me. And, and it's a really addictive feeling. Like when you get on stage and people laugh and clap, that's the, one of the most addictive feelings there possibly is. But I also like problem solving. So when I found hypnosis, I, I found it's quite interesting. If you're like a singer or a magician, you can go out on stage and you can sing your song and you can do the tricks. And if nobody's watching, if nobody cares, like it's, it's, you can still get through it. It's not very pleasant, but you can just push on and get through it. Likewise, if you're a comedian, you can just go out and do the jokes, even if nobody laughs. It's, it's awful, but you can do it. With my show as a hypnotist, like every night is like a new set of problems to solve because what if nobody wants to take part? What if nobody's going to do it? And I love the fact that when I go on stage with nothing but a microphone and an audience and you just have to pull whatever show you can pull out of that. Again, I think I like the challenge and the problem solving of it. That like sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not so good. Sometimes it's amazing. Occasionally you have a really bad night as always happens in entertainment of any description. But I think, uh, again, it comes back to this, this love of, uh, of enjoying problem solving. And so I knew from a really early age, like when I was four or five, I knew I'm going to be a performer. I thought a magician at the time, but I, I, I was like, I'm going to be a performer for the rest of my life. So I, um, I had an odd thing coming towards my 20s when most kids in the UK were deciding like what university you're going to go to at 18 and all of that stuff. I was doing the same thing. And everyone had always told me, go to university, spend the first couple of years of your 20s getting qualified, come out of it with something like, with a, like a proper job. And then, and then you can, or qualifications anyway, and then you can try the entertainment route. And if that backfires, then you can, you can, always, you can always go back to your job. You've got the qualifications. And I was just about to do that process. And all adults had always told me to do that. And it was just in the nick of time. My dad said, why don't you um why don't you take one year? Why don't you take one gap year to try things as an entertainer? Like loads of people take a gap year and go backpacking or whatever. Why don't you take one year and try being an entertainer and see what happens? Because honestly, he said, otherwise I think what you'll do is you'll go to university, you'll spend the next four years doing that. You'll come out of it with a qualification. You're not going to enjoy that process. I wasn't particularly academic. So that was another thing, but like, I'd probably done, done okay, but I wasn't particularly academic. He said, you'll probably go through that four years. You'll probably not enjoy it. You'll come out of it with something at the end that you won't even want to use. And then you will try this thing, which might work. So why don't you just try it for a year, give yourself a year. And if it doesn't work, then you can go back to university. So I, I and I did, and I'm glad because most parents are the opposite of that. Most parents say, no, no, you need to be a doctor or a lawyer or something. And so I did, and, and I never looked back and I've made it to 33 and I've still never gone to uni. So I think that was possibly the best possible start to my 20s, I guess. And take me into like one of your favorite performances, like take me into like something that you did during that performance. What was it like? What was your favorite parts about it? Take me into that. The most amazing thing was actually in the early part of my, of my 20s. I used to come home from Greece in September and September is obviously just when our academic season start academic year starts so all of our university students have just gone back to uni so when i was 21 22 i would come back from greece in, in the early part of september and then in the middle of september just start this massive freshers tour that took me around like 20 universities across the uk and so at night pretty much night after night for 20 22 consecutive nights i would just go out on stage in front of hundreds of students who were just in the most excitable stage of their life you know they've just come away for the very first time and and there i suppose they were sort of going through the same stuff that i would have gone through when i first went to greece and all of that stuff and that was really interesting the audiences at universities were just a lot more and because i was a very similar age to them they were like 18 and i was 20 21 so like it was pretty close most of the entertainers they had for freshers week were djs from bbc radio one who were much older than me or comedians who were again much older than me because i was roughly this ish 
the same age as them. I think that gave us an interesting dynamic. And obviously they're a lot more, they have a much more lighthearted sense of humor than some older audiences did in terms of the stuff we could do. So, I mean, they, 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 they felt like rock concerts. I could have been a, I could have been some enormous, you know, rock god performing in front of thousands of adoring fans it was such a good such a good set of gigs almost all of them i I don't think i ever had any bad gigs in a university but because again they were just up for it and i think i'd managed to find a a, like a niche where again they felt quite connected to me because i was again a similar age and yeah and so that was always a lot of fun and what are your shows like? Like, what do you do during sets? Like, what's it like for your audience? So now I've adapted things a bit. I now do like a theater show. So one of the things I didn't want to do, I got really fed up of um, being the hired entertainer at somebody else's event. So like where you turn up and uh, everyone's enjoying themselves, mingling with cocktails and stuff. And then suddenly somebody interrupts all of that and says, now you need to watch this thing you've never heard of before. And now I have to like fight for the first few minutes of their attention to prove that it's going to be good. So instead I decided to do my own theater show. So now people buy a ticket they come they're only there to see the show and there's nothing else on and then um when they get there they come into the room obviously into the auditorium sit down the show begins i come on stage and talk for 10 minutes and it's kind of just comedy and warming up the crowd and then i ask people if they want to take part and they want to explore what their mind can do with absolutely no inhibitions at all get on stage and people volunteer and they rush up onto the stage and then we hypnotize them which takes like five minutes and then once they're hypnotized we send people back if they didn't get hypnotized or if there's basically there's usually too many people for me to work with so i'll send some people back and then we do two hours well an hour and then an interval and then another hour of like just non-stop mayhem people People believe in their pop stars. They are from a different planet. They can do things they can't do. They're dancers of every description you can imagine. Um, sometimes the show gets a little bit rude and some crazy things happen. And then during the interval, we send them out into the audience with different like ideas. So they're doing different things in the bar and outside the toilets and in the foyer and stuff, which keeps the thing going and makes it a bit more interactive. And all of that was developed really through through just doing hundred, well, thousands of sh- well, yeah, over a thousand shows through my twenties, I guess. And doing all these shows, what did you learn from all these shows and what did you learn works versus what did you do in the beginning that you thought would work that didn't work? I think one of the biggest lessons from life that I pulled out of all of that was the idea that past past mistakes don't in any way, in any way suggest what you're gonna what you're gonna do in the future as long as you're willing to learn from them. So one of the massive things that I've seen over the last few years is a rise in the UK, certainly and around the world, in anxiety and stress and depression. And a lot of anxiety and stress and depression is born out of the fact that people something happens, we have a negative experience, we cling on to that experience and we we don't give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that we could possibly learn from it, that we could possibly adapt from it and that it could possibly go better in the future. And so what ends up happening is we end up like worrying about stuff that happened in the past. And we worry that if we, well, if it happened in the past, it's probably going to happen again in the future. And then that creates anxiety. And then we have worries, especially if you suffer from like panic attacks or anxiety attacks or anything like that, which again is massively prevalent these days. We start to worry about the fact we might have an anxiety attack. So now we've got like this double sense of worry. We're worried about the thing that might happen. And we're worried that even if that doesn't happen, it might trigger us to have some kind of panic attack or anxiety attack. And then that gives us even more reason to, in our heads, worry. And then that just fuels itself and fuels itself. And it ends up on this sort of self perpetuating downward spiral. One of the things I learned very early on is that sometimes things go wrong, but that doesn't mean that they're going to happen every single time. It doesn't mean that, you know, like we're really good at assuming when something good happens, like if you win the lottery, right? If if you win the lottery and you win a million, a million dollars on the lottery, the chances of you winning that ever again are 
almost none. Like the chances of you getting it right and winning again are almost none. And we take that for granted. But when something bad happens, we automatically, just because we're programmed to do it by the media and social media and all sorts of other stuff, we automatically assume that happened before, it'll probably happen again. So one of the biggest lessons that I learned from doing all of that is that because when you do loads of shows, stuff goes wrong. People don't get hypnotized. You get heckled. Like it doesn't work sometimes. Like everything can go wrong. And anyone who says it hasn't just hasn't done enough shows yet. And so the problem with that is, and this applies to, again to everything. If you go to a, 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 you know, a meeting, a lecture, a college, like anything, stuff goes wrong. And when that happens, we automatically cling onto it. And I learned that actually what you have to do is you have to say, okay, well, that was like a, that was a one-off isolated incident that was led to by a set of circumstances. And that set of circumstances is unlikely to ever happen again. So in my case, that exact audience in that exact venue under those exact circumstances with that amount of influence around them is never going to happen again. The chances of that are infinitely small. And so when we start to look at the stuff that goes wrong in our life, lives and we start to think about it more from a point of view of actually, do you know what? That was a that was a horrific time. That was a horrific experience. That was something bad that happened. But actually, I can probably learn from that. I can probably pull something out of that that I can take and go, oh, well, that was cool. I, I learned a thing. But also, it means that you can start to put that in the past and leave it in the past. You don't have to now start to worry about what well, the next time it's going to happen. So instead, I decided to use everything that goes wrong as a springboard to say, okay, great. But the next time I'm in a similar circumstance, so for my, my purposes, the next time I'm going to do a show or the next time somebody's going to, you know, I'm going to be at that job interview or the next time you're going to be on a date or the next time anything happens, the next time you have an argument with somebody, rather than assuming it's going to go the horrendous way that it did the last time, it's easier to say, huh, what could I put in place that's going to stop that from happening? What could I do to, you know, to fuel something better coming out of this? So the more you do anything, the better you get at it. The more you do anything, the more resilient you become about it. The more you do anything, the more you start to realize, actually, I can handle anything. But you have to be willing to look for the possibility that you can handle anything rather than looking for the possibility that actually it's probably going to go wrong again and nothing ever works out for me and all these like negative beliefs that we hold about ourselves and our lives. And what inspired you to get into hypnosis and what is hypnosis? So as a kid, obviously, I was doing this magic stuff. And then when I was 14, uh, we were at like a holiday park in the UK and I saw a hypnotist and I was like, that's I had the same feeling that I had when I was four that went, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. So when I was four, it was a magician. Then when I was 14, I saw this hypnotist. I was like, that's amazing. And initially I wasn't sure if it was real or not. I wasn't sure if they were just like actors and they were all just playing along with the routines and stuff. So I was a bit suspicious and my dad was as well. And maybe because I'd been brought up through magic, we're always taught to like look for the trick and stuff. So maybe I was trying to find the trick, but then I started to explore it. And I thought, you know what? All those people on stage, they all appear to have come from like a family group, like family groups around the audience. So like that means all those people would have to be like it didn't make any sense i thought there has to be something in it and so i was like well i want to learn this and loads of magicians go off into different areas of entertainment like comedy or ventriloquism or juggling or whatever and hypnosis for me i was intrigued because i didn't know if it was real and i thought if it is real then there's got to be like something out there on it there's got to be literature or training or courses or something so i started to explore it and i found two things one is it's not regulated at all there's not like you can go to college and learn it or anything and it's literally people learn it and then they can go on. And if they choose to, they could teach it to other people. So we found out the guy that we saw do the show actually also like did sp spent some of his time performing and then spent some of his time teaching other people to do it. So my dad paid him to teach me how to do it. And I studied it for a couple of years. And then I really quickly became obsessed for two reasons. One, I enjoyed doing it. 
And I decided when I was uh, a bit older to leave magic to one side and just do hypnosis. But I was also intrigued by actually what it could do and the possibilities it could unlock for us. So I started to realize that if somebody comes on my stage and I hypnotize them and I convince them that they are, I don't know, Michael Jackson, and they can dance and do all the moves that Michael Jackson can do or their best possible attempt. And they believe, and I, I don't just mean like they're not, they're not like acting it. They believe at their core for the, the, the next three minutes that they are Michael Jackson. They are, have so much confidence and so much ability and so, so few inhibitions, which makes sense. Because if you were Michael Jackson and Michael Jackson was still alive, if you were Michael Jackson, you, you, wouldn't, have any, like, you wouldn't have any inhibitions about performing on stage because just why would you? So when somebody can become a superstar on stage for three minutes of their life and the audience are, okay, laughing along with them because it looks ridiculous, but they're also clapping and cheering and shouting you realize just how powerful that is if we could take those principles and apply them to our lives. So I became genuinely hooked on, wow, if, if you can just plant a thought in somebody's mind and you can have it have that positive a knock-on effect, like people talk about brainwashing and people have been brainwashed to do stuff. But the truth is, if you can brainwash yourself in a really good way, if you can empower your mind to do amazing things, that's really cool. So what, in terms of what hypnosis is, to your point, Basically, the simplest way to describe it is this. You've got two different parts of your brain. There's the conscious mind and the unconscious mind or the subconscious mind. And the way that it works is your subconscious mind, your unconscious mind, that's that's like the control center of everything that goes on. It's constantly gathering millions of bits of information from the world around you. And more or less, all it can do is answer questions, ask questions, and then find the answer to them. So for example, what's that? Oh, it's a computer. What's that? Oh, it's a camera. What's that? Oh, it's a light. What's that? Oh, it's a microphone. And then that's it. And then it gathers all those bits of information together. And it does it from the moment you're born, even when you don't understand and you can't think. This it, And this is really interesting. The, the unconscious mind doesn't think in words. We think in words, right? So I'm thinking of words and then saying them. And you're thinking of words and then you're saying them. And we think, oh, I've, I need to go to the shop and I need to get some potatoes or whatever. But that's your conscious mind doing that. That's, the, that's you consciously thinking it through. All of the bits of data that are being gathered by your unconscious mind are then put together like a jigsaw puzzle and handed to your conscious mind. And it's that that makes decisions. You then go, right, okay, so I've got all this data and that, that the only decision therefore is this. So for example, you know, if you mix yellow and blue together, it makes green. Have I got that right? Yeah. Yellow and blue together makes green or the other way around, whatever it is. When you mix those colors together around, it makes a color. And you know that because you've done it before, you've seen it done before, you've just heard it before, you've gathered that information. And therefore your conscious mind can make the decision that if I do that again, that's the color that's going to come out because that's what my evidence shows me. And the problem is this, if you imagine trying to put together a jigsaw puzzle, and somebody came along with like a hundred new pieces, just as you're finishing the jigsaw puzzle and throws all the jigsaw pieces in and says, oh, by the way, you've got to make those hundred pieces fit into the puzzle as well. You'd be like, what? How? But that's what your conscious mind is doing all the time. Because every second, loads more stuff is happening. There's loads more stimulus around you that suddenly that gets poured into your subconscious mind. And suddenly it has to now fit all of that stuff in together as well, because it can't have anything that doesn't make sense or feels out of place. We don't, ha we don't know how to deal with stuff that feels out of place. And so what that means is that you've got this constantly evolving frame of reference of the world and your place in it and how you think and what you're good at and what you're not good at. And all of that is fueling the thoughts that you consciously think, the things that you say about yourself, the things you say about other people. That person doesn't like me. He doesn't like me. They think I'm stupid. I'm not very good at this. All of that stuff, all the things we ever think, positive or negative, are fueled by our frame of reference of everything that's going on in the world around us, which is madness. So what hypnosis does is effectively, 
it bypasses there is a thing called the critical faculty it bypasses our ability to to consciously think and get straight into the unconscious mind which is what we dream with it's what does all of that stuff so if you think about like a nightclub with a bouncer outside it's a bit like distracting the bouncer and then sneaking into the nightclub and when you're in there once you get into the unconscious mind you can plant a seed and you're delivering a thought you're delivering an idea or a concept directly into the thing that has all of the power to do something with it and so as a hypnotist on stage, I can like distract people's minds. If you've ever seen a hypnosis show, you've probably seen the hypnotist do things like making everybody's hands stick together at the beginning and all of that. What that's basically doing is it's giving you something to focus on so that your conscious mind has so much attention on that one place, it doesn't notice the hypnotist sneak in and get into your unconscious mind effectively. And so now when those those thoughts get start to get planted, like when you hear this piece of music, you'll believe you are Michael Jackson, the conscious, the subconscious mind just takes that on board as a command and hands it over to the conscious mind and allows you to do something with it. So the next time that music plays, you consciously hear it. Your unconscious mind picks it up and goes, oh, that's happening. That means I am Michael Jackson. And then you leap to your feet and can't help but do it. And the great thing about that is that you don't technically have to be hypnotized to get that to work. Like if you've ever been driving along the road and suddenly you realize, uh, oh crap, I missed my turning like back there because you were in autopilot mode. You just, just without thinking, just drove straight past your exit or drove straight past McDonald's or whatever. What's happened there is you've basically gone into hypnosis mode. You've gone into, into unconscious mode. You were just, because you're unconsciously competent with driving, like you don't have to think about it. You don't have to think, oh, I need to change gear. I need to do this. I need to turn left. Or I need to turn right. Sometimes we just go into that mode automatically. And when that happens, loads of stuff happens. That's why huge billboard advertising at the side of the road works better than we think it does. Even if somebody said to you, what's the billboard that you pass on that road? You might not be able to answer it consciously, but because you're driving along so much of the time, you spend that time in daydream mode, in unconscious driving mode. Basically, your unconscious mind is exposed and it's just absorbing everything that's going on around it uh, most of the time. And so we can use, without being hypnotized, without being like, click my fingers, close your eyes, you're hypnotized. You can absolutely start to reprogram thoughts to be more efficient and be more effective. Can you hypnotize someone who doesn't believe in hypnosis? So the, the theory, the tech, the textbooks would tell you no, but in practice, I've seen it happen too many times to say that it's categorically a no. It's definitely more difficult because as a hypnotist, I don't have any special power or any like rays that come out of my eyes or anything like that. Like as a hypnotist, all I do is I just give you a little process to follow. You follow that process and, and hypnotize yourself effectively. And so basically the answer is technically no, because if you don't want to be hypnotized or you don't think it's going to work or you don't believe in it, you'll just fight against it. And therefore it won't, you won't allow yourself to get to that place. But I remember when I was in Greece, there was a, a couple from Birmingham here in the UK. They came out on holiday and they were on holiday for two weeks in this particular resort on the island. And I used to work in four resorts around the island, but in this particular resort, they were there for two weeks and they saw my show. I did three shows a week in that one bar. So they saw my show every, like every opportunity they could. They saw it six times. And after every single show, the first five, they would come up to me and they'd say, can we buy you a drink? And I'd be like, sure. And they'd buy me a lemonade and I would drink that. And they would say, that was really good. We really enjoyed it. We don't believe that it's true. Like we don't think it's real, but we enjoyed it and it was good. And so I'd say, oh, well, thank you very much. I'm not really bothered if you don't believe it's real. As long as you enjoyed it, that's fine. But they have seen the show five times now with different members of the audience, on, like different people on stage. So they know they're not actors exactly or anything like that. So I thought, well, it's fine. If they don't believe it, they don't believe it. So on the last night, the sixth show, the last opportunity they had to see the show, uh, the wife of this couple said, actually, I'm going to take part tonight because that's the only way I'll ever know if it's real or not. 
And I did say, okay, I mean, if you don't go up there with an open mind, it probably won't work. I said, I'll tell you that ahead of time. I said, I know that sounds like me just trying to cover my tracks because it's not going to work. But the truth is, if you go up there and you, you have a, a closed mind, it probably won't work. So she said, yeah, 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 I get that. Anyway, so she volunteered. She became the star of the show. And we used to film the shows a bit like, you know, when you go on a roller coaster, you can buy the photograph if you like screaming. We used to film the show and people could buy the DVD of the, of the show that they were in because most people don't remember what happened. So they could buy it and take it home and watch it with their family. Anyway, this woman, but I was filming it on like the world's worst camera you can possibly imagine. This is like 2008, 2009. So it's this terrible camera. So the quality is a bit grainy on this. It's, per, it's perched on the side of the bar, just picking up a side angle of the show and this woman came on stage and she got hypnotized she was amazing and then at the end she uh you know we woke her up and to her what's happened is she's come up on stage she sat down she's listened to me talk for five minutes and then she's opened her eyes again at the end nothing's really happened and then she's been sent back to the audience she has no idea that two hours well an hour and a half has gone by all of this crazy stuff's been happening she's been doing all this amazing stuff her husband was obviously mouth open couldn't believe it and they bought the dvd and then they flew home the next day and I got a message from them on my Facebook page the following, like the following week or something. And she was still to that day convinced that we'd set up some elaborate ruse, that we'd got some woman dressed in similar clothes to her, because it's quite blurry. There's some woman dressed in similar clothes to her to act it out and pretend to be her. And that's the DVD we saw there. Because she was like, well, I just didn't do any of those things. I just got up and then five minutes later went and sat back down again. She couldn't explain the time. She couldn't explain any of it, but she was just adamant. It couldn't possibly have been her. So technically the answer is no, but every once in a while you get somebody who is just, I think secretly they probably want it to work. Like they, they, they secretly want it to want to become a star and, and to do that. And so when they get the chance, it, it just happens, even though they're not expecting it. Can we go into your relationship history? Sure. <laughs> you go into the failed engagement and like, do you have any blocks around love after that? And what did you take away from that relationship? Yeah, actually, no. I mean, so I met I met her in, uh, I was in Greece and she was a tourist who came out on holiday. And so we, obviously you meet thousands of tourists and stuff while you're out there. And we met and just kept, and lots of them you become friends on Facebook or whatever and just keep in touch. And then I came back to England at the end of the year, as I always did. And she was having her 21st birthday and was like, oh, do you want to come? And I was like, sure. And she invited a bunch of the people that she'd met and become friends with in Kos over to, to where she lived. And we all went there. Well, it's like, I don't know. 20 of us went down and uh, and had her 21st birthday with her. And then that just evolved into a relationship. And then I moved to where she lived, which is like two hours away. I've I've always been quite location independent. Like I like the idea of living in different places. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me. So I drove down there. We lit, were together for about four years. And then we went, <laughs> we went to New York on holiday and I proposed in New York and then came home and started planning the wedding. And then lots of stuff ensued and that relationship fell apart. And the main reason that it fell apart is that I am notoriously married to my work and my businesses. So I do my show, but I also have a couple of other businesses as well. And I'm notoriously married to that stuff. And I am therefore an absolute workaholic because I love what I do. Like I, I would be doing it if it wasn't making money. Like I just love what I do. And so that was a thing. And so in the end, we sort of drifted apart and yeah, it, it went down the toilet and we ended up splitting up. And I have to say for about a week, I came back up to where I live, which is like two hours north. I went and stayed with my best friend and his girlfriend at the time. And for about a week, I was like in bits because it was the re- it was the first really serious relationship I had. It was four and a bit years long, four or five years long, something like that. And so that was, I was in bits for a little while. And then I very quickly decided that actually, do you know what? It, there's no point in getting 
caught up in it. There's no point. It was her decision to end it all. There's no point in getting caught up in it. There's no decision to be mad. There's no point in being mad at her. There's no point in any bitterness whatsoever. And so I just decided, because it doesn't help anyone. It's not going to change the situation. I didn't want it to change the situation. I didn't want us to get back together because it didn't work out the first time. So like, I, I didn't want to try again. And so there was no point in holding bitterness whatsoever. So I had no blocks around the idea of a relationship again. I had blocks for a very short period of time around around me because I was like, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to very easily change my workaholicness. Uh, and I realized that's not very conducive to a relationship unless the other person is a workaholic as well and is like constantly absorbed or unless you do the same thing together and therefore you can both be absorbed in it together. I've got some friends who are in relationships like that where like they run a business together or they work at the same place doing the same job and therefore they're like constantly absorbed in that and that's fine because they've got that in common. So I decided actually I just have to, I, I have to instead put on my like wish list of things to have somebody who's totally okay with that because otherwise... I have to change and I don't think you should have to change for anybody or to do anything. And that might, that might mean that the finding the right person is really hard, but I think it's perfectly, perfectly okay. We've got this program in the UK called Celebs Go Dating, right? I don't know if there's like a US equivalent or whatever, but they take celebrities and send them on who are single and send them on dates with quotes, normal people. And uh, it's quite funny when you watch them go in and the, the celebrities have got like this long list of things. They need to have tattoos. They need to have this. They need to have, be ripped. They need to have all this stuff. And uh, it's so, sort of frowned upon as like, a, oh, you just need to be less picky. Like you can't have all of that stuff. Now, aesthetically, I think you probably, you can be less picky. Like what somebody looks like is not that important. But in terms of like, their, their values and what they stand for. I just did a podcast episode on my podcast, Success Unlocked, about like how you build a life that's in tune with your values. I think it's really important to figure out what your values are in life and then find somebody who's, they don't have to be the same. They just have to complement. They have to work together. Like you don't have to have two colors be the same for them to match. You can have them be opposite, but they complement each other. And I think that if you can find somebody whose values align with yours, that's really powerful. So for me, there's no harm. There's not, nothing is done wrong by having a list of things that you want in your sort of ideal person and then just like stick to that. And that's, that's going to get you further. And I would love for you to go more into your point of having like two people who are workaholics. Do you think it helps two people who are workaholics in a relationship or one who's more a workaholic and one who's less? What, so what I think it's a better mix. I think what's really difficult is when you have somebody who like, if somebody has a job where their job's just quite like functional, like they get up in the morning, they go to work, they do their work. Then when they leave the door, they leave their job behind and they come home and they are themselves in an evening. I think that's really hard for that person to be in a relationship with somebody who's an absolute hardcore workaholic has to bring their work home with them. Or if it's like their own business, they're going to bring their work home with them. Like as a business owner, you can't ever switch off. Like it's constantly on your mind, even if you're not doing anything. So you're thinking about it all the time. Me and my business partner in one of my businesses, we are constantly constantly whatsapping back and forth with like voice messages even at like 11 p.m dude what if and then we discuss something and like that would be really frustrating for somebody who wants to just come home snuggle on the sofa watch netflix and just you know chill out and so i think it's really important that the person at least is accepting of that if they're not a workaholic themselves but if they are and you can like support each other even if you do different things so if you don't work in the same world even if you do different things i think the ability to both be independently doing your own thing you understand what the other one's going through, even if you don't understand what they're doing. Like, even if you don't understand their job or their business, you do at least understand what they like, the fact that they can't switch off because you can't switch off from what you're doing either. And there'll be things, there'll be lessons you learn that help them solve problems and lessons that they learn that help you solve problems. And again, all we do is all in our life is answer questions and solve problems. And so you can help to answer each other's questions and solve each other's problems too. And what advice would you give someone who maybe is thinking about dating a workaholic? 
decide if it's likely to be for you, like, because it's, it might sound all right. Initially, you might think, oh, that's okay. Like, you know, that's fine. That's just who they are. But actually it can be quite a distraction and you feel like you are sometimes second to the, to the thing. Like sometimes you'll feel like the work comes first or the laptop comes first or the business comes first or money comes first or any of those things. And what you've got to realize is that's not true. Like that's not the situation. Most of the time it's the the thing that they're striving towards that is coming first and that benefits you as well. That's like with you in mind. Like if, if, a, if you're in a relationship with a workaholic and they're doing everything they can, they're only doing it for one reason. They're doing it because they want to have a better outcome. Like, cause ultimately we only work or run a business for money uh, and to help, but to, for money is what is the end goal. And so, and, and for freedom and for, you know, all the stuff that comes with it. So most of the time they're doing a thing that's going to benefit you, that you're doing a thing, they're doing a thing that is going to produce a life that both of you will enjoy, which I think is, is an important way to look at it. But yet you need to decide quite early on whether that's the thing you could cope with for the rest of your life because it's not likely to change. Like even if somebody became like a multi-billionaire, they'll still be a workaholic because it's in their nature. They'll just go off and do other things. So it's not like they're like most people work 40 years of their life or 50 years of their life or whatever. They work really hard, nine to five, come home, get a pension, retire. And then they're, and they're doing all of that so that in the last stages of their life, they can be perfectly comfortable. They can buy a house by the sea. They can go and play golf. They can like just chill out. And, and we think of our elderly people as not really doing anything. I look at my dad, my dad's 76, and he is still trying to find new things to do, completely retired from work, but he's still trying to find new things to do. He edits a magazine for a society that he's in. In fact, too, he's, he's treasurer of some different organization. He's constantly finding stuff to do because he too is a workaholic. So even though he's doing those jobs voluntarily, it's in his nature to find stuff to do that he wants to do. And I think the same thing applies to most workaholics is that even if they got to the point where you could, if you sold a business for a billion dollars and you thought, right, that's it, I can retire now. Workaholics won't, they'll start a new one or they'll find find something different because it's the it's the hustle and the I don't really like that word but it's the it's the it's the burn and the excitement that they're looking for and that doesn't go away so I think you have to realize that don't go into it thinking oh well it's going to be like this for a bit but then once he or she gets themselves sorted then a new thing is going to happen and we'll be you know it'll be it'll be it'll be normal then it'll be like me Uh, that's not gonna happen and what is something lighting you up right now I am really excited to be able to perform again. I don't know when this will air, but obviously it's pandemic time right now and we can't do shows. Uh, So I am really excited by the fact we are planning for autumn of 2021. So like September, October of 2021, my next theatre tour, which should have been September, October 2020. And obviously, uh, who knows what the world will look like by then, but hopefully it will be back to some semblance of normality and uh, we'll be able to go out on stage. So I am lit up by the idea of, uh, of that. And, and we're writing a new show and like doing all of the advertising right now and all of that. It's obviously a little bit nerve wracking because we were expecting to do this tour this year until COVID happened. And now it might be next year. But of course, if there was some horrendous circumstance, it might not be. So, but I'm lit up by the idea of it and by the work that goes into putting that together. And what's something that makes you feel alive? I think it's knowing that uh, my my sort of definition of success and, and feeling alive is the idea that every day you get to wake up and you get to try and be a bit less crap than you were yesterday and try and like take one step forward towards where you ultimately want to be. So every day I wake up and I look at the day before every day, look at the day before. And I think, what did I learn from yesterday? What am I grateful for from yesterday? What made me feel really good yesterday? What mistake did I overcome or problem did I solve yesterday? Okay, good. Now, how can I like move forward from that and take all of that and naturally improve to become better than I was yesterday? And so I think I feel really alive in the idea that every single day 
is one, one more step in a journey. And it's not a journey that ever has a destination because the, like, there is no end result. Nobody wants to be complete. When, like, when you get to the end, it's like, well, now what do I do? So that, that, that's unfulfilling. But the idea that every single day, and it'll be like this until the day I die, every single day I take a step forward is just another step on a journey. It's another chapter in a story. It's another thing. It's another opportunity to, to progress. And what's something that keeps you grounded? The fact that I, I suppose the fact that I know where I came from. So I know that I, I was once this really shy, humble, terrified kid. I still am a real introvert at heart. And like the fact that I've, I've done some cool things. I've made some massive mistakes along the way. There's more mistakes than there were, you know, good successes. That's the case with everybody. And I think that the more I focus on, okay, but if that went wrong last time, how do I make sure it doesn't happen again? Or if that mistake happened last time, how do I make sure it happens again? I'm really good at using the mistakes and not dwelling on them, but that definitely keeps you grounded. If someone came up to you and they said they wanted to feel happier, what advice would you give them? I think you have to, most. if you currently don't feel happy, it's for one of two reasons. One is that the, there's something physically or emotionally that's stopping you from being happy and you need to identify that. Or it's because you haven't got anything to be happy for. You haven't identified the thing to be happy for. But happiness is therefore ultimately a choice. You can actually choose to be happy. Now, sure, there are chemical balances in our brain and we can't deal with those. And, and there are some you know, clinical diagnoses around that. But for the most part, the vast majority of the world can absolutely make the decision to find a thing to be happy about and to remove the things that are making them unhappy. The problem is we are terrified of the idea of removing things that make us unhappy because that normally affects somebody else. So maybe you're in a relationship and that relationship is making you unhappy, but it's easier to continue being unhappy than it is to break up with that person and break their heart and ruin all and, and, and ruin everything in your eyes. So a lot of the time, if there's a thing that's making you unhappy, it's either going to be like a relationship, a job, a friendship. So it might be a romantic relationship or just like a different relationship, uh, a job that you're in, a circumstance that you're in, the place that you live, the thing that you're doing, the way that you feel about yourself. And all of those things can be removed in order to increase happiness. But also you have to find the thing that you live for. Like you have to find the thing that makes you excited. Now, if that's a business, it might be a business. If that's your job, it might be a job. If it's not your job, then you've got to find something outside of that to do that absolutely makes worth worthwhile that life feel worthwhile and so most people don't really enjoy their job that much they do it and it's okay and they do it and they mostly do it to get paid and then they're excited when they get to go home or take a holiday or have a break or a day off or whatever Uh, and so because we spend most of our time sleeping and working we really have to find something really fulfilling to fill that other bit so i think the first thing i would do is just identify am i currently unhappy because i have a load of stuff that's hampering my happiness or am I currently feeling unhappy because I don't have anything to be happy I haven't found the thing to be happy about or is it a combination of the two is it a combination of a negative circumstance and the fact that I don't have a thing that lights me up and makes me feel alive once you've identified that that's a really simple like thought process sit down with a piece of paper just draw out everything that's going on in your life and figure that out once you've figured that out you can now choose to do something about it you can choose to go say well I'm going to join a club I'm going to learn a hobby I'm going to do a thing I'm going to find the thing and it might take some exploration but you can find happiness in exploration to dig around and find the thing and and basically you can then functionally choose to be happy and if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20 year old self what advice would you give him so i was i was a bit unusual when i was 20 in that i had the real philosophy that 
everything everything's probably going to go right whereas i've got like my best friend he has the attitude that everything's probably not going to be all right and therefore you should probably plan for the worst case scenario i assume the best case scenario and i think i need to be somewhere in the middle so which is why i am now i would go back and say assume for the best but also plan for the worst but if you if you assume for the worst it just leaves you in a negative paranoid questioning mindset that means you overthink a lot whereas if you can assume that the best is going to happen but you've kind of got a backup plan in case something goes wrong that's a really powerful place to be. So I, that's how I think now. If I'd thought that way in my 20s, I would have avoided some mistakes because, well, not avoided the mistakes, but I would have avoided the circumstances of the mistakes and the outcome of the mistakes because I would have planned for it. So assume the best, plan for the worst. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. <laughs> awesome. Where can people find you online? The best thing to do is probably to go and check out my podcast, which is called Success Unlocked. So you can find it on any of the podcast players, uh, or of course you can find it at successunlocked.com. That's probably the best place to go. And uh, yeah, you can join my newsletter there. I send out a newsletter every single day with some sort of tip, story, advice, inspiring idea that all wraps around the idea of how can we think better? How can we improve our thinking and all of that stuff? Uh, There's also a little free pack of resources you can get if you want to just go to success successunlocked.com forward slash shit show and you can uh, you can download a, a set of free resources it's like worksheets and activities all designed around like reprogramming the way that we think thank you guys so much for listening i'd love if you can leave me a review on itunes please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with i hope you guys have a great rest of your day